Before I go any further, let me introduce more formally our speaker, Dr. Erica Teixeira, to discuss space law, good governance, and advancing our space strategy. Erica, please. Thank you very much um, for that lovely introduction. It is true that when I moved to Perth, I realized there aren't that many people here, and I keep running into the same people um, who are covering very similar issues uh, to the ones I am interested in. Um, thank you all for being here today. I would very much like to also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, the Wajak Noongar people, and to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I think it's fitting that we think about those people because how many thousands of people have stood on this spot over 50,000 years and looked up at the sky and wondered what those stars were, what those planets were, um, and stood on the banks of the Durbal Yerrigan and, and dreamed about space the way we dream about space now. Because I think it's always been fascinating to people um, across a, a large period of time. And the image here is actually taken from the Australian Indigenous Astronomy website. So if you're interested in Indigenous knowledge about the stars and, and some of their traditional uh, beliefs, uh, please do look at that website. And some of it's now been built into the national curriculum. So uh, today, I just want, to, in this very short time, to take us on a journey, if you like, across space governance. Um, I want to briefly talk about some of the history and, and the early developments, which still provide a really solid foundation uh, for space developments and space governance today. I want to look at some national approaches very quickly and then move on to the Australian Space Agency, its establishment, the civil space strategy, and some of our law and policy developments as well. And then I want to focus on three issues um, that I think are probably the most pressing at the moment the satellite constellations, the congestion of space and space debris is the first one. The second one is about exploitation of natural resources um, in space, mining, etc. And the third one is tourism, so visiting space, and perhaps in the future also living and working in space. So I don't have very long to speak, and I can actually speak for about three weeks without taking a breath <laughs> and underwater. So I'll try not to do that, and I'll try not to exceed my time. Um, so, firstly, I just wanted to talk about the big picture, the global picture. So, we have the United Nations, as we know, and we're all familiar with that. So, we have the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, so it is the principal body that has been responsible for the development of global space law uh, for many, many years. It has two subcommittees, including, obviously, a scientific technical committee, but also a legal committee as well. And it's supported by USA, the Office of Outer Space Affairs. So that's probably all you really need to know about those bodies at this point. And just before I sort of get into the nuts and bolts of some of the space treaties that we have, um, it's worth reflecting, <clears throat> I think, on the developments over time. So you can see I've just broken this down. It's not controversial. Many um, authors break it down into a similar forced stage period. So we see this early stage before anybody is actually going into space, before we launch, starting launches, when we're <clears throat> drafting soft law principles. So by soft law, I mean things like declarations of the United Nations that are not legally binding. They're very influential, and we know how influential they are. We have the Declaration on Human Rights, very influential, but it's technically not legally binding on states. So that's that first stage. And then we talk about those declarations, that soft law hardening over time. So as more states realise that uh, you know, these principles are sound, they're going to be able to utilise them, they're not going to create too much of a challenge, we get treaties being developed. And that's what we see in the 1960s and all the way through to the end of the 1970s. <coughs> Since then, though, we haven't seen any more hard law treaties at the global level. All we've seen is soft law. We've seen guidelines, we've seen different codes of conduct, all of them helpful, all of them may encapsulate best practice, and they may be very influential, but they are not legally binding. And so we get to this last stage, which I think is where we are now, where we're reassessing um, the, the existing law, its fitness for purpose in the modern age, if you think back to these treaties that were developed in the 60s and 70s, whether they're still fit for purpose now, whether we need new binding laws at the global level, whether we uh, can manage uh, space activities 
at the national level with, with uh, national legislation, and or whether we need some new non-binding law and developments. And the technology is, I uh, had a nice conversation outside about technology and its development, but I would say technology has developed quite a bit over this, this period of time. We know that and we know new uses of that technology are emerging as well. So I have been quite clever, I think, for me and, de and designed a slide that has encapsulated international space law, hopefully in a way that is, is relatively simple. So you can see there, everything in green is an event. It's a launch or an event. It's a timeline from 1957 through to 1979. So you can see on the left there, the green, that's the first time an object is launched into space, 1957, and we launch Sputnik into space. The red is the, is the establishment of UN COPUIS, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. So that's when it was first formed by the United Nations in 1959. We have to think about that time, 1959. Similar time to the Antarctic Treaty uh, system being developed, still relatively sort of post-war when we're very worried about peace and security, not repeating any of the, um, any of the um, sort of situation that led up to the Second World War and, and the war itself. Then the five blue circles are all the five treaties. There are only five international treaties. Um, I've changed the colours. The darker blue is the one that's ratified by most countries. 111 countries have ratified the Outer Space Treaty uh, in 1967. So that's the most popular, if you like, the one that most of the states um, have, have accepted, adopted, ratified. And it's really a constitution, if you like, for space governance. Um, it establishes some fundamental principles which are really, really important, and I'll come to those in a minute. We then see the Rescue Agreement, 1967, and I'll look at some of the detail of that, but as you can imagine, obligations, this is during the Cold War, to assist astronauts that might be stranded. When you think about the spacefaring nations at the time, um, obligations to return those astronauts back to uh, their homes, uh, their home states. Liability Convention, lawyers love liability and dealing with uh, issues to do with that. And then we see the Registration Convention, 1975, as more and more objects are being uh, launched into space, we need to, to make sure we are registering them, keeping a central registration. And at the very end, in pale blue, we have the Moon Agreement. And it's in pale blue because only a few countries have signed that and ratified that, 18 countries. It's, not, it's in force, it's got enough states for it to be in force, but hardly any nations, and none of the UN Security Council, none of the spacefaring nations um, historically have been part of that. Australia, quite strangely, has ratified it, uh, but it's one of only a few nations. So I've tried to put that in context with the first person in space, the first man in space, the first woman in space. Um, Vanguard 1, right back there, is the oldest object still in space, still orbiting around. They lost contact with it in 1964, but they know it's still there somewhere, and it's still orbiting around. And the reason I want to spend a little bit of time looking at these treaties, because you will see uh, quite a lot of debate and discussion about their fitness for purpose. Look at the time when they were developed. How could they be fit for the purpose, purposes we need them for today? Um, but I would argue that they are still fit for purpose. They may need to be supplemented uh, with some additional law, but they are fit for um, our purposes. So. I'm going backwards, so that's not helpful. So um, this is in very small text, and I don't expect you, you to read it, but there are some of the key principles there of the Outer Space uh, Treaty. And most importantly um, is the principle that the use of outer space must be for the benefit and in the interests of all countries. That outer space is a province of all mankind. No individual country can claim sovereignty over outer space. It's open to everybody. There must be no nuclear weapons. It's got to be used for peaceful purposes. And astronauts are the envoys of mankind. Um, they are to be rendered all possible assistance. It's all about cooperation, mutual assistance, peace, security, and um, exploration, certainly, but not ownership. Interestingly, um, the most 
uh, relevant, I think, for today's discussion is Article 6. And I'll read that one. Um, so states bear international responsibility for national activities. So states and individual countries internationally responsible for the its space activities. And you would think, perhaps, that because this treaty was developed a long time ago when only governments were developing and, and developing technologies and putting objects into space, that it only binds governments, but it doesn't. Because the next line says, the activities of non-governmental entities in outer space shall require authorization and continuing supervision by the appropriate state party. So it envisages activities in space that are not purely linked to a government agency, a national space agency. A non-governmental entity could be a company, could be an individual, could be a not-for-profit organisation. And so um, this treaty does actually provide these fundamental principles that will still guide our behaviour today. And interestingly, it, largely that treaty has been um, well received by, by different countries and the principles are principles that are built into all kinds of other agreements, um, not just uh, international law. So it goes on to talk about registration of objects, it envisages a growth in the industry. So this is the most fundamental international law we have, it establishes the principles that I think are still relevant uh, today. So the rescue agreement, as I said before, you can imagine um, per personnel of, it talks about personnel of spacecraft, and that's a relevant phrase, we'll come back to afterwards. But it's about the duty to notify of an accident involving personnel of a spacecraft or involving a space object. So a duty to, to notify another state, to notify the launching authority and the United Nations Secretary General. Obligations to rescue and render assistance and to notify the UN. Obligation to return personnel, as I said before. Obligation to recover and return objects. So this is about assisting. If you imagine Apollo 13, we know that incidents happen if you had to um, assist an, a, a, a spacecraft or assist a person. Not just in space, but if they have landed on the high seas or they've landed in your territory back on Earth. So that's still relevant as well, and I'll come back to that uh, definition of, of who it covers. So the liability convention, also important. Launching state, um, or the state that procures a launch, or something, uh, the state from which an object is launched has, um, is, is defined as the launching state, and it has absolute liability for damage to the surface of the earth or to an aircraft. So absolute liability. You don't need to prove fault. Absolute liability. But for damage, otherwise damage in space, um, it is a fault-based liability. But it creates that um, uh, regime for states to be responsible. So it comes back to this issue, which uh, a commercialization issue, as to the, the launching state or the, the state over, that has authority over individual objects is going to have the liability. Does not have to be an object that is launched by the state uh, through a state government agency. Okay, and then there's all kinds of procedures for compensation, etc. Uh, the registration convention requires each state to create a registry of the objects it's launching into space and then to notify the United Nations. The United Nations keeps its own registry of space objects. Okay, that's all very sensible. If we do, we've got to know what's up there in space. You can't keep secrets. You have a duty to notify of the objects you're putting into space. Then we come to the tricky moon agreement that nobody wants to ratify apart from Australia and a few small countries. Um, no, so the countries that have signed it, Australia, Armenia, Austria, uh, Kazakhstan, Mexico, uh, Pakistan, Uruguay, interestingly, to come back to Uruguay. Um, so, but the Moon Agreement, um, a lot of it repeats what's in the Outer Space Treaty. Um, so it, it doesn't just apply to the Moon, it applies to all celestial bodies. So would apply to an asteroid or another um, object in space. Talks about freedom of scientific investigation, talks about non-appropriation, um, also requires states to take measures to prevent the disruption to the environment of the moon 
or damage to the environment back on Earth. So that's interesting for the time. Um, but the important provisions, the ones that have caused the most concern, state parties undertake, sorry, the moon and its natural resources are the common heritage of, hum of humankind, common heritage of mankind. So this means that they cannot be appropriated. They cannot be taken by any one state. They've got to be used for peaceful purposes and the benefits have to be shared. And the sharing of the benefits is the tricky part to this. So the moon and its natural resources are common heritage. State parties undertake to establish an international regime to govern the exploitation of those natural resources. So they undertake to develop another regime um, to exploit the natural resources of the moon as such exploitation is about to become feasible. And they write that in 1979. So I think that's kind of interesting. And then it go on, goes on to say the main purposes of this regime, which is to be developed, are the orderly and safe development of the natural resources of the moon, rational management of those resources, expansion of opportunities for the use of those resources, and the killer line, and equitable sharing of benefits. Now, this would mean that a corporation that was developing technology to go and take the resources from a, an asteroid, for example, could not keep the benefits of those. It would have to share them. This is a very similar regime to the one we have for the seabed. We have the International Seabed Authority, the seabed under the high seas, so the benefits must be shared from any mining of manganese nodules or whatever we're going to mine on the seabed under the high seas, not the seabed in an in, of an individual country. So this is very much a product of its time. It's not unheard of because we developed that regime for, uh, the, for the seabed, but it was never very popular um, with some nations and it actually stopped um, some countries from, from ratifying parts of the law of the sea uh, because of those provisions. And here it's resulted in only 18 nations ratifying the moon agreement and none of the nations that are really uh, the ones that are uh, were able perhaps to, to take up these opportunities straight away. So it's left us in this sort of middle ground in terms of the Moon Agreement, Outer Space Treaty, some solid principles that we can keep working with, but the Moon Agreement is a little bit ambiguous. Now I wouldn't want you to think that that's all the space law there is, but the slide it can only fit so much text on it. All you need to look at is the colours here. There's a whole range of other international laws that have been developed. There's some more treaties. The dark blue are the binding treaties. And these are, are the only binding treaty that is really in this context is, is to do with satellites. The ITU, the International Telecommunication Union, that's about certification, registration of satellites, giving them an orbit, uh, a particular slot for an orbit so that uh, we're not having two satellites in the same place or trying to orbit the Earth. So there's no more space treaties as such, but there are a few relevant treaties. There's a convention on mobile equipment, all kinds of technical things. Uh, then there's some more principles-based agreements. They're not binding, but they do establish principles which can then be built into future agreements or national law. So principles on nuclear power and the use of that. Principles on remote sensing of the Earth from space. So satellite monitoring data that's being um, uh, collected about what's going on on, on Earth. Probably the most relevant one for today are the uh, space debris mitigation guidelines. So these are guidelines, not legally binding, but they are, it's an international document and it establishes principles to do with um, preventing the creation of more space debris because that is becoming a problem, uh, already is a, um, uh, a challenge um, in terms of the danger that it presents, uh, but we certainly want to prevent any more. So, I don't want you to walk away thinking that there has not been any space law since 1979. There has, but a lot of it is not legally binding. So, why, why, oh, I've got a blue eye. Why does this law still matter? I would argue it still matters, even though it's quite simplistic, it's quite basic. Treaties today might be this big. These are just a few pages long. Um, but it's still relevant because it includes some of the most important law we still use today. If you look at many other instruments that have come later, they refer back to the principles in the Outer Space Treaty. They're always referring back to those. The principles have largely been followed by states, uh, haven't really been broken by any states. Nobody's planted a flag on an asteroid and said, we own this asteroid. 
Um, no one has started a war in space. So to a certain extent, you could say that they've been very successful in what they aimed to achieve. Even the soft law instruments that have come later build on those, those treaty building blocks, build on that foundation. So they are still important. And even non-UN documents, non-UN developments refer to them. And this is something I'll come back to a little bit later on, um, but it's quite uh, important, I think, to reflect that this is an area where it is not just the United Nations that is developing uh, instruments, developing agreements. They are being developed outside that framework as well. So, looking at the national laws, then you can see here, there's just, this is just some examples for you. Those, that early treaty, even before that, even before the first treaty, even before the Outer Space Treaty, the US had passed legislation, passed legislation to establish NASA, um, and in 1958 was really early, even before the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space was developed. It already had its own uh, act. Then we've got some early law. You can see Norway, Sweden, moving all the way through. These are what I call basic treaty, uh, basic uh, acts of parliament. So these are basic uh, documents that are implementing those international obligations and often repeating those principles because these are each countries that have ratified that treaty. That treaty does not automatically bind you and me. Australia has to pass legislation to implement the principles in the treaty. And that's what they did. You then get this second sort of band of developments, and I've put Belgium law there and some French law. The French law is very, very comprehensive, um, very broad, covers all kinds of activities. The Belgian law is quite narrow. Um, it just covers the activities of, of interest to that country. And so you get the second sort of suite of legislation being developed by countries as they seek to establish a space sector. And then towards the bottom, I've put some of the more recent developments. So the US, and I'll come back to that act, that commercial, uh, the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act, this is the act where um, the US has authorised the mining of resources from asteroids, um, uh, from space. They they've done that at the national level. Luxembourg's done the same. Um, new Zealand, you can see they've, they've got new, new law. Australia's got relatively new law, which has been uh, uh, the old act, the Australia's old act, the Space Activities Act, has been reformed. And these new acts are very much focused on national policy, achieving those national policy objectives. If you want to be a launching state, then you're going to have legislation that, uh, that authorises launches. If you want to be involved in uh, high-altitude rockets, you're going to have high-altitude rocket legislation because that's what's in your national interest. That's the way you implement your national policy. So we see these developments over time, and we're seeing more and more uh, national uh, developments. So looking at Australia then, we've got the Australian Space Agency. Basically to, to, to build this civil space sector in Australia, to, to build our capability, prepare our workforce, um, develop national capacity, but also to engage internationally. It is all about civil space. It's, uh, it's not about military activities at all. And we we're in this period now, 2019 to 2028, 20, uh, with the civil space strategy. And I've just drawn out a couple of things there that are relevant to regulation. So the space agency is responsible for regulating our activities and uh, adopting law, setting a timetable for the reform of law, because we had the old 1998 Act, which needed developing, and also recognises, the bottom line there on the left, that there are many ancillary services to the space sector. And I think this is a really important point because, as Brendan said at the beginning, I, I, I didn't start out as a, as a space lawyer. I, I have come to this field because it's very interesting, um, one. And two, because this, is, these, this area is developing very, very fast and the downstream uses of satellite data or the uses of the technologies that we've got here that are now being... Um, now being applied to space is growing. And so sort of the space, the field of space activities draws in everybody. Um, it draws in all kinds of disciplines. And, and it makes it quite exciting, I think, because it's all relatively new. So we've got this civil space strategy. We have actioned that. 
So you can see here, um, sort of a three-phase approach in that space strategy. I've just drawn out the responsibility section because that's a bit that is more legally focused. So the first commitment we made was to reform uh, the Act, uh, Space Activities Act, then to implement risk management frameworks, more detailed rules for the activities that we as a nation want to be involved in. We already have companies who are making satellites, launching satellites, returning satellites, and we will soon become a launching state ourselves, where we can launch our own satellites or satellites from other uh, built in other countries. So uh, we need, needed that reform to our framework, our legal framework, and then we want to, at the end of the, the strategy period, develop regulatory support for future space, space activities, which aren't necessarily uh, specified. They've referred to human space flight, but it could be other future activities. We've got to start to prepare that regulatory environment. And we've done that. We have uh, reformed the Space Launches and Returns Act. That's our new act, which provides a permitting arrangement, authorization arrangement for launches, authorizations for um, rockets, and also returns, overseas payload permits, all kinds of authorization uh, certificates. So that's our permitting system. We've also got detailed rules and regulations around that, which have come into force last year. So in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of developments in this area. There's further documents um, and developments of different codes that support uh, that regulatory framework. So we've got the Act, we've got the more detailed regulations, and we've got non-binding non law, which supports that in terms of codes of conduct, more detailed guidelines. So quite a sophisticated legal approach focused on what we're trying to achieve as a nation. So having looked at all of that, I want to just touch briefly on three key concerns, and I highlighted them at the, the beginning. This sort of satellite constellation, space debris, congestion that we've got in space. How, do we, how are we going to manage that in the future? It's all very well for Australia to say, we want to develop launch capability, we want to build our space sector, but every other country wants to do the same. Uh, and if those countries all do that, it's going to become even more congested. The satellite constellations, we've seen an exponential growth in the number of satellites that we're putting up into orbit. How do we manage that? How do we manage this exploitation, mining, commercialization issue? We've got those basic principles in the Outer Space Treaty. We've got a little bit of a dodgy ratification of the Moon Agreement. Um, so how are we going to manage uh, this issue? It's not going to go away um, because they keep finding new resources and as technology develops, um, someone will find a way to mine them effectively. We've already seen some pilot activities there. And then there's this issue of visiting, living and working in space. So visiting space is something that um, is becoming very real. Living and working in space may be a little bit further off, but it's definitely a possibility. Um, and in the far distant future, the possibility of actually creating bases, camps, colonies on, on different celestial bodies. Now, that may be a long way off, but we've already had people essentially living and working in space on the International Space Station. We could build more space stations, there are plans to do that, and we could have people living and working in space who may not be astronauts, who may not be trained by... They may not be members of the military. There might be more and more civil, um, civil stakeholders involved. So... This is the most fascinating website ever. If you have not looked at it, I encourage you to do that, and I have already loaded it up. It's called Stuff in Space. Uh, so you can click on any one of these little dots. You can zoom in. You can click on a dot, and you can see what it comes from. You can watch it going around. It tells you its speed and... It's altitude and everything else. So the, the red dots are satellites. So here, this is your Starlink um, satellites. You've got little bits of space debris here. Many an hour can be wasted playing with this. <laughs> Don't do it unless you have plenty of time. But it's fascinating. Um, and it's obviously not to scale, but it's really um, worth, uh, worth uh, having a look at. Have a think about how much stuff is up there. Now, some of that, obviously, we've got these satellites. As we're putting up more little tiny cluster satellites, some of which might be this big, um, putting lots of them up, that's going to create more and more um, congestion. 
We've also got satellites that unfortunately, or defunct satellites that hit each other and explode, and you can um, actually see particles of those and the traje trajectory of those particles that's then creating more and more um, debris. So that is a, a, a really good resource for us to think a little bit more about it. Um, okay, so the, yeah, you can see the red is the satellite, the blue is the rocket bodies, and then the gray is the debris. So stuff in space, great fun. So we can look at all these resources about uh, uh, all of these different materials about uh, what resources um, we are leaving in space. So sometimes it's, you know, boosters from rockets, it's defunct satellites, it's live satellites. A lot of satellites have to constantly move out of the way to avoid the collisions with other, um, other debris that's up there. And then you have incidents where some nations decide they're going to destroy their own satellite and then create a lot more debris. So you can see here that the two incidents here, China's anti-satellite mission destroy, um, destroyed its own satellite um, and created 900 pieces of debris. And then the first major impact uh, created another, uh, another large number um, and contributed significantly to this um, problem that we have. But the more satellites we're putting up there, the more times we launch and we put um, objects into space, the um, more debris we are creating. So that is a, a challenge. Um, it's not an unlimited resource. We are, you know, we risk treating space a little bit like the ocean where we thought that we could never have an impact on the ocean. And now we're dealing with the issue of plastic debris, marine debris in the ocean. We appear to be making the same mistakes again and we need to avoid uh, that situation. If we want to have satellite communications, if we want to be capturing more satellite data, if we want the benefits of these satellites, then we have to be mindful that the orbital slots are very valuable and they aren't unlimited. Um, we're creating this congestion and we need to minimise debris. So there's quite a lot of um, news articles you can read about, about different technologies that are being proposed to attract those bits of debris, capture them, bring them back, because they're worth a lot, uh, the, the materials they're made from, um, or somehow destroy that space debris. But that technology is a long way off from being operationalised. And so until we get to um, the point where we do have technology that will allow us to address the existing problem, we need to minimise the creation of any more um, debris. So we've already got some global soft law. As I said, we've got these two sets of guidelines, the debris mitigation guidelines. They're not legally binding, but they are best practice principles for how you can minimise um, debris, um, the creation of debris. And Australia is a country that has nationally implemented that. So I said before that we have uh, amended our law. The Space Launches and Returns Act has these rules, the regulations associated with them. So when you are applying for your, your launch permit, you're required to have a strategy for debris mitigation. That strategy has to be based on, based on global best practice. One of the ways to do that is to base it on one of those two sets of guidelines because they represent uh, global best practice. They must describe the measures to be taken or planned for, to, to reduce orbital debris from the proposed launch, and they must include an orbital debris assessment again, must be based on international best practice. So Australia has taken those steps to implement what is essentially soft law, but to address this problem at the national level. And so the global law is, is soft law, it's not legally binding, but Australia has turned it into a binding requirement. It is the law in Australia. Um, we also saw, I saw a great article last week um, about LEO Labs and the New Zealand Space Agency that have now got a cloud-based platform where they're monitoring and tracking ob um, objects in low Earth orbit, the, the LEO orbit, um, ensuring, trying to ensure satellite operators are actually adhering to the regulations and what that they said they were going to adhere to, and also helping those operators identify potential collisions. So we can see some of these technologies being developed by in, in collaboration between a state space agency and a private operator. Okay, so there's lots more developments here. One of this is to avoid collisions um, we can, uh, with existing debris. So we've got to minimise the creation of new debris, uh, avoid collisions with existing debris because otherwise we're just going to create more particles by every time you have a collision. And uh, then 
hopefully in the future we can um, implement new technologies that will collect what is already there. So another slide here that's taken here from Planetary Resources, Infographic Labs, about uh, the space economy, the modern gold rush, the rush for resources, um, water, oxygen, hydrogen, minerals, all kinds of things that are on, on different objects um, in space. Uh, Platinum-rich asteroids, etc., etc. So there's already been uh, some activity in the space uh, in terms of trying to, um, or actually succeeding in collecting samples from these uh, different objects. Okay, so this is about the fact that resources are limited on this planet. If we can um, mine resources in space, not, not bring them back, but leave them for use. Uh, if there's water on the moon, for example, then we, that will be able to be used for uh, different uh, bases that we might want to have there. So there's definitely c considerable interest here. It's worth a lot of money, so um, it attracts a lot of uh, enter enterprising um, organisations. We already, again, have international law here, so going back to what I already outlined earlier on, um, international law does... Um, it does uh, govern some activities. Article 6, as I said, the activities of non-governmental organisations should require authorisation, continuing supervision, which basically says if, if a company in your country wants to go to the moon and mine resources, then you, the state, has to, um, has to authorise that activity and it has to, you have to continually supervise it. Parties, have sorry, parties, being here states, have the liability. Um, for those uh, activities that you have authorised, whether those activities are carried out by the government or whether they're carried out by a non-governmental organisation. But we come to this issue of appropriation. Now, one of the current issues that interests me, because I also am fascinated by the law of the sea, um, is this link, if you like, or this, this comparison between um, exploitation of resources on the high seas, fishing and fish, and exploitation of resources on um, the moon and asteroids. If you look, though, at the um, Outer Space Treaty, it has this line in Article 2 that outer space is, cannot be subject to national appropriation by a claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. Now, the law of the sea doesn't include those same words. The law of the sea refers to claims of sovereignty. So we can fish for, uh, we can fish on the high seas. No one can claim ownership, sovereignty, sovereign rights over the high seas, but we can uh, catch the resources, exploit those resources. But when you look at the OST, it doesn't just refer to claims of sovereignty. It refers to um, claim, uh, appropriation by any other means. And that's really where the issue lies. What does by any other means, what does that mean? Does it mean that you can uh, appropriate, take resources, but not take the asteroid? Now, the Moon Agreement has, as we said, that other clause within it talks about the common heritage, talks about developing a new regime to um, exploit the natural resources of the Moon and to share the benefits. But the Moon Agreement has not been ratified by many countries. So we cannot really rely on that um, because the countries that have authorised mining are Luxembourg and the US. And the, they're not likely to be the countries that have ratified the Moon Agreement. So we, whilst we might want to rely on the Moon Agreement, and we have to think about whether that treaty can... Uh, parties or, sorry, states can be encouraged to ratify that treaty. Um, it doesn't really bind... Um, the right people at the moment. So then we look at these national approaches. And so the US and Luxembourg have both all, uh, uh, created a legal regime that allows for the authorization of that mining. The authorized companies can claim exclusive ownership over the resources, but not over the celestial body. So not over the moon or part of it and not over the um, asteroid. And that's really where the technical argument lies. What does non-appropriation mean? Does it just mean the whole of, ownership of the whole of a celestial body or does it mean the resources within it? And I think it is relevant <coughs> that there is this difference in wording between 
the High Seas Convention and the Outer Space Treaty. And I'm sure the international lawyers in the room will have lots to talk about in that area. So just moving on to this last issue of visiting, living and working in space. Um, we have the emergence of these reusable launch vehicles, these basically your um, a, a, a vessel which will, allow to take, which will allow visitors, tourists to travel up to the edge of space and come back down again. What legal frameworks apply? We don't have a space tourism treaty. We don't actually have a tourism treaty at the global level at all for any types of tourism. Um, we don't have one for this type of activity, but go back and think about the rescue treaty. Um, are space tourists personnel of a spacecraft? Because the rescue treaty talks about insurance and um, protection, um, the obligation to rescue, to assist um, uh, the personnel of a spacecraft who are in distress. So if a tourist is, um, could be considered to be personnel of a spacecraft, then that rescue agreement would apply to them. And that's one of the main concerns. One of the main concerns is the safety of the tourism enterprise. So um, we need to think about that. Um, if you have a look at different legislation, you will see in different countries, and the US is the, the country that's really authorised this, they do separate crew from participants. They talk about those two groups of people who might be on a spacecraft as two separate groups. We don't do that at the international level. We just talk, it just talks about personnel. So further into the future, we've got to think about living on an artificial object. Um, if you or I went up and were on, a, on an artificial object, a space station um, in space, we would be subject to the laws of the nation, our nationality. Those laws would apply. Um, so Australian law would apply to me. And uh, some of my South American friends at the back, I've got all kinds of South American countries that aren't Uruguay, uh, that they would be, um, the law would be applying uh, to them. So, and when we've seen tailored agreements, so the International Space Station had its own agreement because you had a crews that were collaborative, different nations coming together, working together in the same space. So they did have some special agreements there. And we may need tailored approaches in the future if you just have uh, people from a small number of uh, a small number of different countries, you may be able to come to some agreement, uh, a collaborative agreement, to say, okay, um, we will combine our laws, or the laws of any one of those countries could apply. But what about living on another planet? Um, because no country can appropriate or claim sovereignty over another planet, the there are jurisdictional issues. There's no property rights on that planet that a country cannot have jurisdiction in the same way it can on Earth, and therefore their laws can't apply. Still, an individual person would be bound, or a company would be bound by the laws from, from which they're the country from which they come, but it becomes a little bit more uh, complicated. So we need to think about that in the future. Now, we could also think about the very different living and working conditions you would have in space, which are not the same as on Earth, you're working in confined environments, you're living and working probably in, your, in the same space. And we've all learnt a little bit about that with COVID, but before COVID, we didn't really think about living and working entirely within a relatively small space. So uh, we need to think about that, and that again brings in a whole range of other disciplines. And I have recently uh, been fortunate enough to work on a published paper with some of my colleagues in psychology who, who uh, look at this issue of working in remote environments, working in confined environments, and how you might apply that in space. And we, you know, th this is not unusual uh, for the United Nations, so we can think about uh, the Working in Fishing Convention, for example. The International Labour Organization has developed a convention to try and harmonise uh, the arrangements, the contractual and other arrangements for. Uh, living and working on a fishing vessel. Why could we not do the same for space? We haven't got to that stage yet. Maybe it's not pressing yet because it's still a long way off. But I think we do need to be prospective in thinking about these issues in the future. So a few future considerations. Who is going to develop new law if we need it? If we need new law for mining in space, if we need 
tourism laws, if we need um, uh, debris, stronger debris mitigation laws, who is going to develop them? Historically, it was the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, or it could be another UN agency. I just talked about the International Labour Organization. It could be them. Could be national governments, um, but national governments would, as I said before, be developing laws in their own national interests. But it could also be other organisations. So you can see, some of you may be familiar with the Moon Village Association. They've got their own development of it's a civil society group. They have their own um, uh, developments in terms of what they think would be important for the Moon. You can see other organisations that I, I've put there have all proposed different solutions. Um, you can see academics and researchers who are proposing um, different uh, international law developments. Um, if it's the UN who is developing this law, um, the, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, what are they going to do? Are they going to develop another treaty? Are they going to develop protocols, like sub-agreements, implementing agreements under existing treaties? Are they going to try and harden the soft law that we already have, or are they going to develop new soft law? But we can also see something like the Artemis Accords emerging, which is not within the UN system. It's outside the UN system. Uh, a series of principles for uh, peaceful exploration of, of space, uh, signed up to by a number of countries, um, including um, Australia. Is that the way forward? It's more of a, uh, a, a social contract among these nations, in a sense, to agree to behave in a certain way. It's not binding law. But is that the way we are now heading rather than more treaties? There's a fair amount of resistance to um, treaty making in general because it's such a long, expensive process um, and you, uh, the negotiation process itself often means that um, in trying to please every country, you end up watering down the principles. So is that uh, perhaps that could be the way forward, but it need not be. But if national governments are left to develop law, as we've seen, I showed you some of the examples from 2015, 2017, 2019, these new laws that are being developed, they're going to be developed, as you'd expect, in the national interests. And those national interests are going to vary between countries. If we then end up with a system of laws that is disparate and fragmented, then it's going to make it very difficult, I think, to manage uh, the bigger picture of uh, space exploration. Particularly if your company registered, you're making satellites in Australia, for launch in Australia, for launch in America, for launch in Luxembourg, for launch in Malaysia. It, it, the, 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 if it's too varied, these laws, it's going to make it in, incredibly difficult to actually manage and operate. The UN's recognised this. We had a resolution in 2013 recognising the differences between countries, recognising their legal systems and priorities are different, but the need to harmonise the law. And then we also see the International uh, Law Association, which is um, not a government-based organisation, it's individuals, um, many international lawyers in the room uh, may be members, uh, they developed a model law. So a model law is like a template. So the basic uh, provisions of that model law are built into the, to, to the template, and then an individual nation can take that, tailor it a little bit, because each country is slightly different, but you're basically sticking to the same um, provisions. Is that the way forward? Is that the way that we can uh, develop more harmonised law between uh, countries? And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Um, to a certain extent, it remains to be seen. So I just wanted to end by telling you about the exciting new developments at, um, at, uh, at UWA, the development of the International Space Centre um, at UWA, which is, was launched in January. It brings together people from disciplines across the whole of the university. Um, I'm fortunate to be one of those people. Obviously, the scientists make up a large proportion of the International Space Centre, but there are, there are people within that Space Centre who are psychologists, who are doctors, who are um, uh, biologists learning to grow plants in space, how we, can, how we can grow food in space, if that's what we're going to need. Psychologists who are looking at... at uh, the mental health, the, the working conditions that we need if we're going to spend more time in space. So I think this has been a really exciting development for UWA, but it's an exciting time 
to be involved in looking at these developments. Um, as I said, there's no, not going to be an easy answer. Um, if it was easy, we would have done it already. But it's going to take everybody's ideas, drawing on different backgrounds, drawing on different experiences that we have from all different ways we've managed our living conditions, our working conditions, our commercial activities, our international affairs. So I hope that quick voyage through the world of space law has been uh, helpful. Um, and I wanted to just thank the association for allowing me to speak on one of the most exciting topics that I have ever been asked to speak on. So thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Erica. Erica said she wasn't an expert on space law, but what came through in that presentation is you are really an expert on the global commons. The concept of the global commons, you know, your, your deep background on, I guess, oceanic issues um, flows through and you bring really a multidisciplinary approach to this very complicated issue. So um, that was a really great exposure of the issues. So uh, we have about, I would say, 10 minutes for Q&A. Um, can I open up uh, the room, please? Thank you. That was an um, excellent uh, presentation. Uh, my comment, uh, uh, question is on the, uh, the role of the uh, states or the uh, lower level jurisdictions. So prior to 2018, there was a lot of competition between the states over the location of the establishment of the Australian Space Agency. That was resolved, and I'm wondering if the interest from the states kind of died away from them, and also if there's any state-level uh, legislation or law that's been established. And, for example, if there was to be a launch site established in a particular state, what role do the states have in, in that? Thank you. You're, you're stretching my expertise. I am not a, a state uh, expert. Um, I think that you have to accept that if you're going to build a launch facility in a state, then the state still has the development approval and all of those uh, different um, uh, legislative arrangements that, we, that would still apply. They're not, this is particularly if you're talking about a commercial activity. If you're talking about a, a, a military defence activity, that's different because that falls under the constitution to the Commonwealth to, to control that. Um, in terms of different, sta different states in Australia have different priorities as different countries have different priorities. And so, yes, uh, South Australia got the, the space agency, but, but Western Australia has different, um, different uh, activities here. We have the SKA array, for example. Um, we have uh, Earth observation, sorry, um, observatories here and the radio telescopes here and, and different, um, different priorities as well. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not able to talk about the different legislation. I'm afraid I can't answer that question. Uh, that will be for a state expert um, who may well be in the room, but not me, sorry. On, 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 the, on the issue of states, I think WA does have some, some notoriety on the, the issue of space debris. We, we found the largest chunk of the Skylab mm -hmm. in WA in 1976. One of the most famous stories. We have great space heritage here. Yeah. I'm all for establishing a space heritage trail across Western Australia and to go on a very long camping trip. I know that there will be some people in the room who will join me on that trip. Dr. Suboy. Erica, thank you very much for that. It's really interesting. From 1980 to 1984, I was the Australian delegate on the first committee at the United Nations, where all this stuff was uh, considered by, by the, the assembly through the first committee. So it's been terrific to see what's happened since that time, because there were some very meaty uh, discussions at, at that time. And it was really, I was really proud to be part of the discussions and the negotiations on those issues. And I'm really pleased to see what's happened since. Um, to ch sort of change the tone a bit, I have to share with you something that happened when I was the, the delegate, because we always had an expert from Australia to come and accompany the first committee delegate when outer space matters were being discussed. So we had someone from Australia um, who was the expert. And uh, this particular year, this expert had a very broad Australian accent, very broad. I can't remember his name, but you, you may, may know someone. And um, so I was uh, monitoring, because what we did is we would give the text to the interpreters so that they could do the interpretation from, from a text. They weren't just listening. 
But um, so I had those texts. But what I was doing was I thought, well, I'll check the interpreters to see how they're managing. So while he was talking, I tuned in to the French interpreter. And I found the French interpreter talking about espionage and espionage. And I thought, that's very funny. There's nothing in our text about espionage. That's wrong. So then I tuned back to listen to the Australian, and he was talking about outer spies. <laughs> so the interpreter was hearing outer spies and thought it was in. So there was a tremendous misunderstandings going on. I just thought I'd just share that with you, just for, just for fun. <laughs> Well, when I saw you when I saw you walk in, Sue, I thought there's always going to be a story. When Sue, yeah. Sue's here, there's always a good story. I would love to to pick your brain about those uh, the 1980s and the conversations, but I still find it very hard to understand Australian accents myself. So I feel sorry for these people that have to simultaneously translate it. It's incredibly difficult. Thankfully, I can't speak another country well enough to another language well enough to ever check what people are saying. A wonderful story. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, my name's Phil, I'm a geologist. I'm interested in how you would enforce these laws. And I'm thinking in terms of the law of the sea, what's happening in the South China Sea right now. What, how would you do that? So this, that's a really, really good question. And, uh, you know, that's a, a perennial question of international law. How do we enforce international law unless we, we don't have international police who are enforcing the law? And... As an interesting story myself, that's how I started looking at um, this work was through illegal fishing trying to enforce um, international law of the sea um, and using satellite data to do that. Um, there is, interestingly, there's quite a lot of uh, scholarship on this. Uh, so there's uh, several authors who've talked about uh, developing a protocol to the Outer Space Treaty uh, that specifically focuses on enforcement and creates a body to enforce. So at the moment, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space develops the law, but it has no role in policing, monitoring, um, or enforcing the law. So could, and, and one person suggested giving that authority to uh, UN Copious to, to do that. Um, that would allow it to, it would give it the authority to check up on what countries are doing. Um, but we don't have that, but that's one, one way. We could create an international body that, that, takes, that takes that role. Um, at the moment, it's down to individual states, and that each state has to enforce its own law. And the trouble with that is that you, we will have, as I'm sure you're familiar, with the flags of convenience and um, countries uh, in, uh, that register ships and, you, you know, certain disreputable or people that want, don't want to have the high level of regulation... Uh, and have to um, implement that, they will go to a country which has the weaker law. Um, it's a little bit different here because the launching states are limited. There's a limited number of launching states. Um, it's not every country, but if you wanted to develop a, uh, an industry in a particular country for launches or returns, then yet you could use different marketing devices to attract um, people to that jurisdiction. So enforcement is definitely a problem. I was kind of interested in that Leo Lab technology that's been developed with the New Zealand Space Agency that was, is sort of checking on what satellite, uh, satellites are, are doing. It's a, it's a cloud-based uh, platform. Um, we might see more organisations that are doing that. Again, that one is a collaboration between a government agency and an individual uh, corporation, so there's a potential for that as well. But it's a really good question, and if I had the answer, I'm sure um, it would be... It would be a good thing to share, but I'm afraid I don't. Hi, my name's Ash. I'm on the committee for AAA. I say, I've always been sort of puzzled by the attention, focus on the rescue agreement because it seems to me that if someone gets in trouble up in space, hardly anyone's really going to have the appropriate hardware sitting around to go and rescue someone. But further to that, what do you see as, as the most likely contest of international law that's likely to take place on something regarding something in space? Well, I think it's probably going to be outside the area that I've spoken about today. It's probably going to be a militarisation defence uh, issue. 
a security issue, I would think, and uh, that's not really the area that I look at. But I, uh, that, I mean, I've really looked at the civil space side today, but the militarisation side is, is definitely a, an ambiguous and contested area. Um, you only have to look at the, the anti, the, the, the um, yeah, to the anti-satellite uh, technology was used to destroy the Chinese satellite. What does that mean? You destroy your own satellite. It's not aggressive, but if you destroy someone else's, of course it would be. But you now have that capability. Um, I think that's where the contest is likely to be. Um, uh, but thankfully, it's not one that I, I have to engage with. Uh, the rescue agreement, I think, is definitely a product of its time. And I, I, but I, I think if you imagine... Um, Apollo 13 landing, uh, it, or the, the you know the capsule landing in Russian territory. Would they keep? You know, if you didn't have that treaty, would you keep a couple of astronauts for a couple of years and uh, talk to them for a little bit, um, ply them with vodka, and try and get some information out of them? Or would you keep the the um, if if you were you had technology, then you've collected technology that might have landed in your territory. So this was about. Assisting, yes, but I think the, not, the other side to assisting is the return of the astronauts immediately, the duty to notify that an object has landed in your territory. You can't keep it for a while, reverse engineer it, then return it. You were supposed to uh, notify immediately. So I think that was... And it, it was a product of its time. It was the Cold War. It was the USSR and the USA, uh, you know, were concerned about these things. And, but it still has principles that I think are relevant today. Um, and the rescue is probably more likely in the future, the ability to rescue, than it was in the past. Thank you, Brendan. I am Flavia Bellini Zimmerman from the Australian Institute of International Affairs. I'm the commissioning editor for the blog Australian Outlook. So you mentioned that there is a need um, to harmonize um, space governance and international regulation. So my question is, if there are any measures at the moment being taken by countries globally to harmonize the international guidelines and to which extent there is a willingness to harmonize these guidelines at the moment. Thank you. So I think that issue of harmonization is, is important and reducing fragmentation and it exists across in many areas of, of law. Um, I showed you the International Law Association model law. That was an attempt by a global uh, organization of legal academics and legal members to try and develop a model um, that could be used by countries as they develop new law. So rather than start from the beginning, rather than just start with a blank piece of paper, you were starting actually with um, a, a model that you could tailor. So I think there's those developments. Um, the, there's the UN copulus recognises the problem and has called upon states to harmonise, so it's encouraging them to do it. Um, if you look at some countries, you can see uh, it's very great similarities between the legislation in countries. Now, if you love legal research and the, the esoteric elements of law, you can talk about transposition of law and how you can't transpose the legislation from one country into another country. Um, and I've done plenty of work on fishing laws from one country just do not work. You take the very same successful law in one country, it won't work in another. So... That won't work, but to, just to, to, that doesn't mean that you can't take a good idea and a, and a piece of legislation in one country and tailor it for your own needs. And you might do that if you have groups of countries that are, uh, have um, trade agreements or other, other types of international arrangements that, he, that they want to work together. They want to work together on launches and returns, for example, or constructing satellites and launching in, in a particular state you could see that there may be benefits in collaborating. Um, and if you have companies that are operating across multiple countries, I would like to think that there is um, an interest in harmonising laws uh, between countries, particularly if it become, becomes an economic barrier, an investment barrier. Uh, countries don't want to create a barrier. Legislation has enough, you know, gets a, has a bad reputation as it is with red tape. Uh, it doesn't want to, countries don't want to create more barriers to industries that they're trying to grow. So I, I think there are developments and I think there is interest, but it remains to be seen how harmonised we become. Great, thank you. Um, if there are no, there's one final question um, at the back. Hi, my name's Scott Ingram. Um, I'm a member of the AAA 
Young Professionals Network. So one of the things that you touched on regarding future development of the law was the idea of countries sort of binding together and looking to produce things like the Artemis Accords. Now, specifically regarding those and the way that they've been treated, I think it was in June, there was a draft memo placed through. Um, they had delegates from, or unnamed delegates, both in support of adopting those Artemis Accords as a multilateral mechanism, but also at the same time saying, no, we don't want to adopt it. Is there some sort of risk of a schism occurring within that international legal body? And is that a real problem or is that sort of just sort of developing as they're going back and forth in negotiations? Well, we always have that in international law to a certain extent. Um, uh, you have groups of countries, blocks of countries that join together. Now, whether that's um, going to be um, in, in an international forum like the United Nations or whether it's going to be uh, outside that, I, I'm not sure that that really matters. Um, within the United Nations, everybody has a voice um, and every, each country is treated equally. But I mean, you only have to look at climate change to see the small island states vote together. The developed countries are separate from the developing countries. And, you know, so you're going to have the space-faring nations are separate from other nations. Um, something like the Artemis Accords sort of, I think, that type of approach is more bottom-up, that, that you, you're getting your friends together, if I could put it that way, who have similar interests and uh, similar values. And you can collaborate with that particular group to create an agreement. Now, that you can't do that at the UN level in the same way because everybody's equal and everybody's there and it's a top-down process. So I think there's a role for both. I do think that where we need global standards, you, you need everybody at the table and you need uh, the, United, the backing of the United Nations, I think, for a best practice standard. But if you're talking about a more values-based instrument, um, which when those values vary between different countries, then you can get those countries together and they could lead a more bottom-up process. So I think there's a role for both. I think the Artemis Accords is perhaps a, uh, this area, this, sorry, the, the Artemis Accords is an example of perhaps a new way of developing uh, multilateral agreements or, or however you choose to describe it um, that we haven't seen widely used um, everywhere before, and so perhaps it's a new avenue for the future. Thank you, Brandon, for giving me the floor. And on the behalf of the Institute, I would like to um, thank um, Professor Erika Teixeira for a brilliant presentation. We are all more knowledgeable on space law and governance. It was really fascinating, uh, and there is so much room to explore in this field. Uh, and on behalf of the Institute, we have a little token of appreciation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.